0: and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute. Now recorded in socially distanced form from the comfort of our homes to yours, we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford.
1: And I'm Trevor Thrall.
0: The last month has been a tough one for more reasons than one. Unemployment numbers have smashed records, the economy's in a tailspin, uh, and over 60,000 Americans have now died of coronavirus. It's been a tough time. Um, but it's also been, uh, perhaps less noticeably, an interesting time for scholars and practitioners' of civil-military relations. That's the people who study civilian control of the military, how to manage it properly, and how to avoid the imbalances between civilian and military authorities that sometimes lead to coups or military governments in countries around the world. Um, This time, however, it's mostly America we're talking about. No one is seriously suggesting that a military coup is likely here anytime soon. Um, But at a lower level, there have been a series of recent problems in civil-military relations, including questions about the chain of command, interference in military discipline by civilian authorities, and a growing number of senior civilian roles filled instead by recently retired military personnel. To talk about these issues and what they might mean for the future of civil-military relations, we have friend of the podcast, Alice Hunt Friend. Alice is a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a former civilian staffer at the Department of Defense, and a visiting research professor at the Army World College. Alice, welcome to Power Problems. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So there's a lot we could talk about on this topic. Um, it seems like the Trump era has just been one big series of civilian military problems after another. Um, and, and I am not personally particularly familiar with this topic. Um, I'm not sure how many of our listeners are. So I'm hoping you can help us uh, sort of understand why we're suddenly seeing so many of these issues. Um, let's start with the big recent controversy, and that was the firing of Captain Crozier, the commander of the uh, aircraft carrier, the USS Theodore Roosevelt. Um, can you talk us through what happened here? Um, why did his firing become such a big deal?
2: Okay, so <laughs> this is uh, really involved, this story. So I'm going to try to give you the Reader's Digest version because, oh, my goodness. Um, so the Roosevelt is a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier with a crew of between five and 6,000. Um, and anyone who's ever been on a Navy ship knows that even on a massive aircraft carrier, sailors live in very close quarters. Um, in general, being at sea is not conducive to social distancing. Uh, And it is conducive to the spread of contagious diseases. Um, So on or about uh, March 23rd, I think it was three crew members on the Roosevelt tested positive for the coronavirus, um, for COVID-19. So they were taken off the ship and put into quarantine. And then about a day later, another five sailors tested positive. Um, And by the end of March, there's another 70 cases. Um, So by this time, the Roosevelt is in Guam, in port in Guam, and these sailors are all being sent ashore for quarantine. Um, But of course, given the virus's incubation period and that someone can be asymptomatic but still shedding the virus, um, given those things, the commander of the Roosevelt, Captain Brett Crozier, he recommends a conservative approach. He wants most personnel uh, taken off the ship. He wants to just leave behind a skeleton crew to maintain the nuclear reactor and keep control over the vessel, right? But there are reasons the Navy is hesitant to take this step. Uh, For one thing, it's concerned about taking a carrier out of circulation for two weeks or more. Um, That's a consequential decision in terms of presence, adversary deterrence, and partner assurance in the Pacific. Uh, So it means readiness to fight is also reduced. Um, and then practically speaking, it's not easy to find hotel rooms to put several thousand sailors in isolated quarantine um, on Guam, which is a fairly small island. Um, so there's an internal debate happening in the Navy. Um, and on March 30th, Crozier decides that this debate is taking too slow, is taking too long. It's the Navy's acting too slowly. And he sends a memo up his chain that urges basically the evacuation of the Roosevelt Um And the memo finds its way to the San Francisco Chronicle just one day later on March 31st um, and is posted to their website, which means now we have a big public controversy on our hands. Um, But at this point, it's still a controversy uh, that's fairly limited to the uniformed Navy. Um, At first, the acting secretary of the Navy, Thomas Modley, uh, says nothing will happen to Crozier for sending the memo, that he appreciates the captain's candor, et cetera. Um, but a couple of days later, Modley decides that he actually has lost faith in Crozier's judgment. He says that Modley sent the memo, I'm sorry, he says that Crozier sent the memo to too many people over an unclassified system, and that's why the memo got leaked to the press. Um, And he also insinuates that Crozier himself might have done the leaking since the memo appeared in Crozier's sort of hometown newspaper. I am also from the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, Crozier is from the North Bay, San Francisco Chronicle publishes in San Francisco, but bygones. And uh, Modley says Crozier uh, should have at the very least known better than to distribute this memo to so very many people. We know now, thanks to some good investigative journalism, that Crozier's distro list was actually pretty typical for internal Navy communications. Um, but at any rate, uh, Modley relieves Crozier of command on April 2nd. So he isn't fired from the Navy, but he is taken out of his job. Um, and this, so this all happens really fast. It's in the space of a work week, basically. Um. So Crozier being relieved of command does not go over well with the crew, um, or for that matter, with members of Congress. So pretty soon, um, there's a phone camera video that leaks of the crew all gathering on one of the decks of the carrier to see Crozier off and to, to cheer for him. Um, so And again, that's public, and so now Modley has to defend his choice. And he does so first by talking to the Washington Post um, to a columnist named David Ignatius and explains that he lost faith in Crozier, but also says that he was trying to prevent President Trump from intervening um, in the decision over the Roosevelt. Um, This recalls the intervention that, uh, that Trump did in the Eddie Gallagher case last year. Um, And that's a big flag because it suggests that Modley's main concern was with what the president would do, not what with Crozier did. Um, But then Modley does something else. He actually goes to Guam, which I just note is a 16-hour direct flight from Washington, D.C. If you've done it the way I've had to do it, you do two stopovers, one in Texas and one in Hawaii, and it takes nearly 24 hours. So it's really quite out of his way. And he delivers a speech to the crew that's still on board the ship. And the speech, predictably, is also caught on a phone, although it's only the audio. And in the speech, Modley really attacks Crozier. He says he was either, quote, naive or stupid. And you can hear sailors on the audio responding to this with expletives. Um, It is not a crowd pleaser, this speech. And frankly, Modley sounds petty. Um, And it's just an odd choice, as if he's trying to rescue his own reputation. Um, And, you know, this is what's called a distinguished visitor trip to the carrier. And that's a lot of work for the crew. And it's very disruptive. And it's just not what a crew fighting a pandemic disease needs. Um, And on top of it, he insults their very popular captain, who he had just relieved of command. Um, So now there's a ton of controversy. Um, which also includes an op-ed in the New York Times from President Teddy Roosevelt's great grandson, which is titled Captain Crozier is a Hero. Um, the great grandson's name is Tweed, by the way, which I think is wonderful. <laughs> that
0: cannot be real. <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's, <laughs> it's what it said on the New York Times website.
0: So the the, the question, I, I guess the question is, um, so that's, you're right, there's a, there's a lot of detail here, um, a lot of moving parts. Um, but I guess, why, why is this a problem for civil-military relations rather than, as you said, it was, it was initially fairly confined to the military um, in terms of decision-making?
2: Yeah. So the argument is really about, first, whether Modley did the right thing, which almost no one thinks is the case. Um, but second, that it's a civilian control of the military issue. So I wrote at the time that this was a pretty classic case of the right to be wrong which is a phrase the civil-military relations scholar Peter Fever coined, that civilians can't be overruled by the military. So it means their right to make wrong decisions, or their right to make decisions whether or not they're right or wrong, takes precedence um, over what the military wants and over the wisdom of the decision itself. Um, So I think Modley did the wrong thing but he was the acting secretary of the Navy, which is the civilian position that oversees the Navy. So he gets to make the wrong decision. And he ends up uh, fired for this too, right? Yeah, he he ends up having to resign and he has to resign just five days after relieving Crozier of command. So there's no sort of rest period, investigation period, period for the the news to shift. Um, It all happens one thing after the other. And so it's this really messy uh, moment in civil military relations because the civilian who's in an acting capacity, which is its own set of problems, um, you know, makes a really bad decision, a really unpopular decision uh, with the Navy, with the Congress. Um, It's unclear how, you know, how supportive the president is or isn't. It's unclear how supportive the secretary of of defense is or isn't. Um, but they decide pretty quickly that Modley's now got to go because he's, he's mishandled this pretty badly. Um, so for a civilian to make a decision that's A, that bad, and then B, results in, in him being fired um, uh, is, is just, I think, a, a really, it's not poison, but it's certainly scarring for the relationship between civilians and the Navy, certainly
0: it seems like the coronavirus is bringing a lot of these problems to light um, just more generally so we we also had an incident a couple of weeks back where uh we had this this just incredibly inconsequential issue of whether marines would have to get haircuts during quarantine would they you know would they have to abide by social distancing and let their hair grow or would they uh would they you know, have to go get haircuts as they're usually required to do. Um, and then we had a press conference where the Secretary of Defense said um, it effectively, oh, that would be so silly. Why would we ask them to get haircuts um and was basically contradicted by the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff um and so it it just seems that when you add this to um some of the news very early on in the coronavirus that military leaders were not taking appropriate steps in order to avoid angering the, the trump white house that said it wasn't a big deal at that point that there's just all these things that the coronavirus sort of bring into the fore
2: yeah that's absolutely right and uh you know, when I was watching the, the press conference, you know, I I confess that sort of those of us that are civil military relations watchers were sort of furiously sending text messages back and forth um, because we kind of couldn't believe that we just watched the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff um, not just contradict the secretary in public uh, at a press conference, but also interrupt him. You know, he he cut him off to correct him, um, which is fairly unusual. Um and you know, I was I was writing to friends saying, "Gosh, should I really just see this?" And there was a lot of debate afterwards about um, you know whether or not that was revealing of their behind behind closed doors relationship. Um, you know, they think maybe it's kind of like that all the time that Millie calls the shots. I kind of doubt that. Um, but what I do think that revealed is that um, folks in military leadership, you know, all the way up to the chairman have become kind of neuralgic about off-the-cuff civilian comments to the point where they're quick on the trigger. So, you know, the, the tension in the relationship over what kinds of decisions civilians get to make and where civilians get to intervene in the military um, is to this, this point where everyone is acting really emotionally and really being reactive and we've sort of lost our ability to step back and, and think more carefully. You know, the whole Crozier incident, um, Esper and others wanted to do an investigation. You know, the Navy said, okay, let's investigate what happened here and, and leave Crozier in place for the time being since it's a crisis moment. This very prudent, um, thoughtful way to approach it. And Modley just acted really hastily. Um, and so the, the need to, to have knee jerk reactions. Over at the Pentagon seems to be an artifact of the Trump era.
1: Alice, yeah, I was just going to sort of piggyback on that thought to tie those two scenarios together. It it, it seems to me that, you know, the right to be wrong, I almost am not sure that that's the bigger problem at the moment, because as you just suggested, I think the real problem is the cumulative toxicity of the Trump era. And the fact that, you know, Modley's, you know, you have to ask, why did he go into such a connection? You know, why did the chairman interrupt the Secretary of Defense? I think they've seen so much carnage, uh, you know, in terms of the civil-military relations under Trump, where Trump, you know, treats the military as props rather than, you know, people with uh, important things to say about U.S. security policy, uh, that basically, you know, it, I think... The, for the civil military relations to go well, as m- with most things, the, you know norms of behavior need to be respected, and the Trump administration is just not really doing that. and I think you've just seen a lot of frustration right now,
2: yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, one thing I've noticed is that the Navy seems to have had a particular problem um navigating the Trump presidency um and I'm not sure if that's just um you know uh r- random dumb luck you know if you recall there was the incident over the USS John McCain and the White House requesting that the name of the John McCain be obscured when the president visited because the president didn't like John McCain um there's of course the Gallagher incident um there you know and the navy itself has had several years of real struggle in leadership um and you know there's sort of a contrast with the armies had less, less trouble, um, a little bit, but less. Um, and you know, you don't hear much about, about the air force and and the president. So it's sort of interesting, um that's that the services have also this uneven experience with the president and I'm not entirely sure why that is um but Trevor you're absolutely right you know the the only way that civil military relations works is if both civilians and the military uphold their side of the bargain it's like any other long term relationship uh everybody needs to be doing 120% of the work all the time um as someone once explained marriage to me um so you know for civilians to abdicate those responsibilities um to really frequently break trust with the military to intervene in the military's autonomy when the military is um, using that autonomy professionally, um, you know, is really problematic because it really degrades trust between civilians and military institutions. And it leads to this kind of neuralgia I referred to earlier.
0: Yeah. um, Maybe we could just talk for a minute about that Gallagher incident you've brought up a couple of times, because I I do think this is one of those cases where, um, you know, it just seems like the president has very little respect for the military, for, for all that he says, um, you know, that he supports the troops, that he loves to, you know, to talk to them, that he uses them, as, as uh, you said, as he uses them a little as props. Um, he went ahead and basically pardoned um Eddie Gallagher who'd been convicted effectively of war crimes um and he pardoned him because uh Gallagher went on Fox News and appealed for his help and the signal that that sends to um to military leaders to even to enlisted men says um you know I don't respect military justice you know I think you just got it wrong
2: yeah I mean the Fox News piece of it in particular is really worrisome um, Because there is a a conflation on the part of the president between military identities and co partisanship. Um, And so, you know, Gallagher was signaling to the president that um, he was at least a personal fan of the president's, but also possibly supportive of his um, political agenda. And, you know, the president is a showman. And so he knew he was going to get a lot of news coverage by involving himself in this incident um, and that he already had a um, willing hype man in Gallagher. And, you know... (sighs) whatever motivated the president to pardon Gallagher as opposed to simply make public commentary on it, um, you know, is unclear. Um, but you know, the president does like to exercise power and he does, um, he does like to reward his loyalists and, um, and he has this particular affinity for folks in uniform whom he thinks of as his political constituency. So all of these things sort of blend together um, in the Trump era, and you know that's that's profoundly dangerous because the more the president treats uh, folks in uniform as co-partisans, the the more that members of the public might begin to also see the military as co-partisans with the president with the president's party. Um, and that starts us down the road into politicizing the military and to seeing the military as a, a domestic political actor and a domestic political interest group.
0: There seems to be a fair amount of evidence, actually, that the the president views um, the military as as his co-partisans. If you look at and this isn't really a, a civil relations issue, but a couple of weeks ago when there was a lot of talk about male voting, um, the president made the point that um, you know people who are retired should be able to mail vote, but that the military should be able to mail vote. Um, And it was fairly obvious that he thought that that would give Republicans an electoral advantage, whether that's actually true or not. He seemed to perceive that to be the case.
2: Yeah. You know, even before he was inaugurated, he told the New York Times editorial board that he believed that he had done very well amongst the military population in the election. He tells military audiences all the time, I know you like me, Um, and he he treats uh, speeches in front of military audiences, you know, on on bases and installations abroad, um, on ships. He talks to them like he's at one of his rallies. He talks to them about partisan political issues, um, he taunts or belittles his political opponents. Um, you know, he he loves to make fun of Nancy Pelosi in front of any audience he can, um, including uniformed ones. Um, and so, you know, again, it's that combination of career military officers um, and enlisted folks and that transparent partisanship um, that has me really worried. But you're right. He does it because he thinks that... Um, that the military as an institution, the services as institutions uh the people inside of them are overwhelmingly supportive of him um and so it's he thinks it's good for his political career to um to cultivate that
1: yes, speaking of that, how about all all the West Point cadets back for a commencement speech, which smacks purely of showmanship and like danger to all
2: yeah, and it it doesn't show care for the services. It doesn't show care for the cadets. Um, it just shows, you know, that he's most interested in himself and his own experience and his own, his relationship with the military, but not, um, not in a responsible way, in a way that's self-aggrandizing. Um and again, I, I just think that's an abrogation of the responsibilities of, of the civilian role in the civil relationship, particularly for the civilian commander in chief. Um, yeah. I mean, so perhaps this is a, a good place to
0: shift gears and talk a little about the the broader problem in uh, in the Trump administration, but in recent years across both parties um, of pulling in Mostly ex military retired military people, pulling them into positions that were typically done by civilians. So, obviously, in the Trump administration, this has been massively widespread. Um, he has this predilection for the generals in in sort of traditionally civilian positions like national security advisor, secretary of defense. Um, there, there sometimes even seems to be a bit of a Fox News pipeline where military men, sort of ex colonels uh, or generals, retire, then they go on Fox News, then Trump suggests them for positions. Um, but it does seem like military, um, military veterans, retired military men and women more generally are getting more involved in the political process.
2: Yeah. You know, and that's a trend that's been ongoing for a while, but, um, President Trump put it in, well, candidate Trump, and then President Trump really put it into hyperdrive. You know, uh, retired military officers have been endorsing presidential candidates since 1988. And the numbers just grow every year to the point where, you know, now those of us that study Civ Mill talk about how it's an arms race, usually between the two main candidates to have the longest list of uh, retired general and flag officer in- endorsements. Um, So I think the story on Trump and his generals has become more complicated since the early days of the administration. Um, You know, we all remember when he really reveled in Mad Dog Mattis and, you know, his generals and so forth. um, Appointing retired military officers to what's what are traditionally civilian political appointments um, seems to be something that he has limited to, to Pentagon positions recently rather than White House ones. He really didn't appreciate how hard Mattis and Kelly and McMaster worked to rein him in. Um, so I think he's lost a little bit of, of comfort um, with having... Uh, these general officers that he doesn't otherwise have a close relationship with. He's he's lost some comfort having them close around him. Um, but, you know, he still really admires um, the, his idealized sense of the general officer, of the general and flag officer. Um, and so, you know, he still wants to know that they work for him, but he seems to be putting them across the river more often. Um, so, you know, but this still raises the issue about the norm of civilians with civilian career backgrounds serving in these national security posts like Under Secretary of defense for policy and secretary of defense. Um, and I think we'll know if that norm is really shifting if the next president behaves the same way. And, and frankly, if the next Republican president behaves the same way too. You know, if, if he hasn't changed the norm for the country or for the office of the president, Then we ask, you know, well, has he changed it for his party? Um, And, you know, in which case, instead of sort of nosediving um, out of these standards of civil relations, we'll be on this roller coaster where one party adheres to them and one party doesn't, which, you know, I think are sort of two different types of disastrous.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, it's really interesting that you raise the point about sort of the recent appointments being somewhat different and, and in fact if you look at them they're qualitatively different too where we've moved from sort of you know the, the General Mattis or H.R. McMasters of the world who were and are military officers but also well educated, broadly respected um, you know at least qualified to do these roles even if there was a sort of a civil concern and, and now it seems to me that the people that he's placing in these positions are, are not necessarily qualified by anything other than the fact that they are former military officers. And I'm, I'm thinking of his most recent suggested appointment, Anthony Tata, who's a, a former general, uh, Fox News talking head. And that's, I think, really all that I can say about him as a, as a candidate for Undersecretary of Defense for Policy.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point, Emma. I mean, one of the the things that really distinguished uh, Madison McMaster in particular uh, was actually their, uh, you know, certainly their, their wartime service and their military career bona fides, but also their sort of traditionally civilian credentials, you know, McMaster, um, has a PhD, um, and Mattis sort of was famously, uh, bookish and, and, you know, studious. And, uh, I mean, I'm sure he wouldn't appreciate being called nerdy, but, um, uh, you know, was sort of famous for being a, a warrior scholar, right? And you're right. I think the, the president has turned to uh, being more interested in warrior partisans. And so that's the test for him now is that they uh, have a partisan and personal, they express partisan and personal loyalty um, to the, the Trump administration and President Trump himself. And, um, and you know you mentioned Anthony Tata as um being floated for for u s d p It was also reported in Politico I believe that he was one of two finalists, and the other finalist was also a retired military officer he's a retired army colonel um so this is definitely um you know a trend for the president um and that retired army colonel was also a fox news uh uh commentator um so yeah, and I mean, if you if you want a, I mean, a really scathing sort of review uh, was written by Max Boot, I believe, in the Post, um, looking a little bit more deeply into uh, Tata's uh, record, which is, you know, there's some problematic stuff there. He's 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 going to struggle in in the confirmation process a little bit. Um, so yeah, it's it it. The president has more and more dropped the pretension of qualified appointees in a lot of ways. And he seems to think that if you, um, you know, pass a couple of partisan and, you know, I once wore a uniform wickets, that that is sufficient.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I have to say this is not exactly a, a cheery conclusion. Um, but be, before we, we move on, and, and I guess finish up here, I wanted to ask you if there are other mill problems that we should be aware of. So I think most of us that don't pay attention to this every day are pretty distracted dealing with the pandemic and everything else that's going on at the moment. And these issues are, are getting buried. Um, and so I wanted to ask you, What should we be paying attention to on this front that we're not actually noticing?
2: Well, you know, below the level of uh, sort of elite politics, uh, it's really worth noting that the pandemic has spurred this interesting debate about whether civilian professions will start to catch up to the military in terms of public confidence and public approval. Um, So for years, polls have shown extremely high public confidence in the military, um, but in numbers that have overshadowed other professions and dramatically outpaced confidence in political institutions. Um, So the debate now uh, that you're seeing online, um, has kind of two points for, well, we're seeing everything online, aren't we? Um, but it has two points. So, you know, first, will the military start sharing the spotlight with doctors and nurses, um, and, you know, grocery store workers, delivery personnel, just everyone ensuring we, uh, have the healthcare and the goods and services we need to survive. Um, and then second, Uh, does it matter if we're also seeing a lot of frustration with how particularly the federal government has handled the response? Um, And if faith in political institutions continues to dive, um, you know, I'm in the camp that's hopeful that our collective admiration um, is going to focus for a while on a broader set of Americans and think about service more broadly. you know, not because I don't also admire the military. I don't actually have a problem with the high um, confidence numbers in the military. I have a problem with the low confidence numbers in almost every other public institution um, and and most other professions. And I think it's a very good thing for our society um, to have this concept of of broad burden sharing for our sense of security and survival. Um, And so, you know, and I, I think we've been sharing that burden in ways that weren't visible or celebrated before. And now we're all realizing how important healthcare workers and childcare providers and everyone in the food supply chain is that they all serve the country too. Um, and that it's not a competition, right? That we're all in this together. And so I think that's, that's a good and healthy thing. And so that, that's one of the sort of sieve mill at the societal level. Uh, topics that the the pandemic has really surfaced.
0: I think that's a great point, um, and, and I think you've particularly seen that with the reaction to um, sort of people showing their appreciation for healthcare workers in the last couple of weeks, and then the fairly negative reaction when the, the Defense Department announced that it would help out by sending the Blue Angels to buzz a bunch of cities, um, and people sort of reacted and saying, what what the heck is this meant to do? So um, so I think that's a really good point, and hopefully you're right, and we will see uh more appreciation of of other sort of service sector uh, support workers as well. Um, But I think we're out of time for today. Um, So I just wanted to say thank you, Alice, so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And thanks to our producer, Cecil Sherman, and to everybody at home for listening. If you want to continue the conversation, our Twitter handle is at PowerProblems. And if you like the show, please do leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever else you find your podcasts.